You've heard of the Friday Night Lights, the main event across Texas on this September 21st, the Friday Night Fight, Cruz versus O'Rourke, today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. It'll be live nationwide. Will you be tuning in? R.G. Ratcliffe of Texas Monthly sure will. He joins us with a cheater's guide to tonight's first of three debates between Democratic Congressman Beto O'Rourke and the GOP incumbent Ted Cruz. You've heard about the wall. As arguments continue over funding, legal walls go up in the nation's most diverse city. We'll explain. Plus, the week in Texas politics with the Texas Tribune and a whole lot more. The Texas Standard gets rolling right after this. Happy Friday, one and y'all, no matter where you are. It seems everyone's talking about the same thing. Yes, it's Texas Standard Time, and our top story tonight's round one of three broadcast debates between Congressman Beto O'Rourke, the Democrat from El Paso, and the guy he's trying to topple, Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Houston. 6 p.m. Central, 5 in El Paso. What should we be watching for? R.G. Ratcliffe covers politics for Texas Monthly. R.G., welcome back. Thank you for having me. So what are you, as a seasoned political observer, uh, looking for in tonight's debate? Well, one of the things that I think you're going to see a lot of is, is Ben O'Rourke has been making a point out of not making the contest a confrontation between him and Ted Cruz. And Ted Cruz wants to make it a confrontation and and try to pin Beto down into debating specific issues back and forth because Cruz believes that Republican turnout is always a little bit higher than Democratic turnout and that if he can get O'Rourke on some of these hot button issues like gun control mm -hmm. uh, or, or certain aspects of immigration, that the debate will work to his benefit. You know, you couldn't, uh, it's hard, let me put it this way, it's hard to imagine a couple of, uh, of contenders with such starkly opposing views on so many issues. Is, is there one that you think is going to stand out tonight? I mean, you mentioned immigration. Well, immigration is a big one because, I mean, Beto O'Rourke is pushing his campaign as a campaign of, of values, of humanity. And part of that is the whole childhood separation issue with immigrants and and the fact that even, even though kids are staying with their parents now, they're still in detention. So it's kind of like kitty jail. And so O'Rourke's like, this is about Texas values. Whereas uh, Cruz comes at it as, you know, we're a nation of laws. Our laws says you can't come into the country illegally. And, and he's also pushing this idea that, uh, you know, that immigration coming in illegally is a or without documentation is a crime. And he's also pushing this idea that undocumented immigrants who sneak into the country time and again commit crime. And he focuses on a case of a woman named Kate Steinley out in San Francisco mm -hmm. who was uh, accidentally shot by a, a man who was uh, had come into the country illegally for like five times right. and had actually been convicted in Eagle Pass, Texas, not long before this. But he found a gun and, and it discharged and the bullet ricocheted and hit her and uh, split her heart. So. But that was in San Francisco. There really hadn't been any cases in Texas. So that's kind of what the stark difference there is going to be, that, you know, Republicans want to crack down on the immigration and 
and Democrats want to reform immigration and treat immigrants humanely. You know, uh, as I understand it, uh, you believe that Cruz has a bit of advantage going into the debate tonight, and I'm wondering what makes you say that other than what, I guess, uh, uh, past uh, voting history? Well, no, it's not so much voting history. His advantage is that, uh, well, both of them are very long-winded on the campaign trail. And so <laughs> you're going to, you know, I, I looked it up and there was a, a, a one cruise was asked uh, last weekend about uh, criticism of his handling of Har- Harvey. And he gave like a three and a half minute answer. And Beto O'Rourke's famous uh, defense of NFL players taking the knee is right. like three and a half minutes long. And they're going to be limited to 60 to 90 seconds today. But the Cruz advantage is that he has been through debates in his run for president. Uh, he uh, CNN last year was hosting debates between him and Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. So he's had this opportunity to debate. And the more you debate, the better you get at it. So he's going to know, have a better feel for how to uh, control the stage. Right. And O'Rourke tends to ramble, and that's going to work to his disadvantage because he may never get to his point before uh, his time runs out. R.G., I think uh, I, was, I was talking with our social media editor here, Wells Dunbar, uh, on the air yesterday, and something struck me that there might be a uh, certain uh, Kennedy versus Nixon 1960 dynamic here because there's been a whole big conversation around uh, likability and that sort of uh, charisma that Beto carries uh, in, in, in many parts of Texas. Uh, how do you see that aspect of it uh, playing out? I, I think that's going to be a, a fairly substantial part of it. I mean, the Beto does have that kind of Kennedy feel. He's kind of kind of actually looks like one of the young Kennedys. He's personable. Cruz tends to be so dogmatic that that turns a lot of people off. And you know, and the it's just a he's got a little bit of a squeak in his voice, and uh, and of course he occasionally gets compared to uh, Grandpa on the old TV show The Monsters in terms of appearance. <laughs> oh man! So all those kind of things kind of work against him. The thing about it is that at the same time, Cruz's issues tend to resonate with hardcore Republicans, and they're not looking for personality. So you're going to really, the debate, all debates tend to be pep rallies, you know, where people tune, that tune in most of the time are all, have already made up their mind who mm-hmm. they want to support. Mm-hmm. This one's unusual in the sense that this race is creating more excitement than we've seen at this point in an election in years. And so I do think that you're going to have a lot of a lot of Texans who don't normally tune into politics paying attention to this one. So the likability factor could play very high in this. R.G. Ratcliffe covers politics for Texas Monthly. R.G., thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Border Patrol officials in El Paso have announced works getting underway on the construction of President Trump's so-called border wall near the city's Chihuahuita neighborhood. 740-something miles to the east, it's walls of a different sort, leaving a mark on what's been dubbed the nation's most diverse city. Houston Public Media's Elizabeth Troval has that story. One of Donald Trump's trademark rallying cries is about building the wall. Build that wall. 
finding money to construct a massive 2,000-mile wall across the southwest border with Mexico has proved difficult. But even though Congress hasn't approved the wall Trump wants, his administration has been slowly, brick by brick, building a legal wall. This wall attempts to limit immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers from either coming or staying here legally. Here's Randy Capps with the Migration Policy Institute. So they've done a lot of little things administratively, like reducing the refugee ceiling, making the asylum process tougher, slowing down um, legal immigration to some extent. The BRICs include the move to rescind the DACA program, which protects 36,000 DREAMers in Greater Houston from deportation. Though DACA isn't gone completely, the future of the program is murky. Another brick is rolling back temporary protected status for Hondurans and Salvadorans, a population of 21,000 people in Greater Houston. When their protections expire in the next couple years, many will be forced to either stay without permission or go back to countries they haven't lived in for decades. Randy Caps again. Their roots are here. They're late in their careers. They'll have a lot of trouble adjusting if they lose their work permits. They're not young and can just pick up and go into another field easily. Another potential brick in this wall is a rule being drafted that will impact family migration. It would discourage immigration officers from granting visas and green cards to people likely to use public benefits. Immigration courts and offices are also facing small yet significant changes. A massive backlog in immigration courts means people wait around for years before a judge hears their case. Dealing with that backlog isn't easy, and some lawyers say many of the administration's actions are hurting immigrants under the guise of making courts more efficient. Andrea Guten works in deportation defense. The attorney general is kind of trying to find ways to push the pressure points on immigration to make it easier to deport people without having to change laws through legislation or through public notice and comment rulemaking. Attorney General Jeff Sessions says migrants who say they're victims of gang or domestic violence shouldn't be given asylum. Sessions has also set case quotas that push immigration judges to work through a certain number of cases each year. In an interview with us earlier this year, retired immigration judge William Zimmer says moves like that are eroding the judicial independence of immigration courts, which are controlled by the executive branch. You can't tell a court you only have so much time because time is important to procedure, uh, uh, due process. You just can't have a time constraint on when you finish a case. Brick by brick. These moves by the administration are making life more uncertain for the 1.6 million immigrants who already call Houston home. But Randy Capps says though these efforts will have a very real impact, the big picture is that without Congress, the administration can only do so much. The total number of immigrants in the country went up by 2% during the first year of the Trump administration, and it went up 3% in Houston. So I would say that the economy is trumping Trump. The booming U.S. economy means there's still incentive to come and stay in cities like Houston. I'm Elizabeth Troval for the Texas Standard.
Wells Dunbar, our social media editor, is away for the day, sitting in Texas Standard's own Michael Marks. Let's find out what Texans are talking about on this Friday, uh, but I think I might know already. <laughs> <laughs> well, the buzz on social media this morning is led, as it so often is these days, by the commander-in-chief. Uh-huh. In the wake of Christine Blasey Ford accusing Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexually assaulting her 30 years ago when they were in high school, previous reports indicated that White House aides were surprised by the restraint that the president had showed in not tweeting about Ford specifically. Uh-huh, right. That changed this morning oh, when boy. the president tweeted, I have no doubt that if the attack on Dr. Ford was as bad as she says, charges would have immediately been filed with local law enforcement authorities by either her or her loving parents. I ask that I ask that she bring those filings forward so that we can learn date, time, and place. Now, Ford's indicated she's willing to testify about the incident next mm-hmm, week. Negotio- mm-hmm. Negotiations over that are continuing. Right. Over on the Texas Standard Facebook page, mostly rebukes of the president's words. In Denton, Anastasia Beaverhausen writes... You can't even report sexual assault in 2018 without a barrage of people calling it BS. You really think in 1983 a report about sexual assault from an all-boys elite prep school was taken seriously? Have more on this when I come back at the end of the show. And we'd love to hear what you think of this or anything else making news today. Reach out to us right now at Texas Standard on Twitter or join the conversation on Facebook. Michael Marks back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where Horn Frog faculty strive to be a force for the greater good. Like political science professor Adam Schiffer, who explores media bias and its impact on American politics. TCU, lead on. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Happy Friday. Last year, the Texas capital city got rid of its youth curfew law, concerned about teens being funneled into the criminal justice system. But San Antonio decided to retain its 2 a.m. youth curfew, albeit with a big change. Instead of issuing fines, Texas Public Radio's Camille Phillips tells us the city's trying to get them help. A few years back, San Antonio Municipal Court Judge John Bull began noticing a pattern. So I have a 18-year-old show up in court that doesn't have a driver's license, doesn't have insurance, and then you start to inquire and find out they dropped out of school and they're not working. It's a pattern other city departments were noticing, too. Young men and women who showed up on their radar, in trouble or on the verge of it, without a place to go. Rebecca Flores is the city's education program administrator. All the programs for the most part that the city was funding were school-based. So if you had not been in school for a year, two years, three years, none of that support was there for you. San Antonio has one of the highest rates of disconnected youth in the country, according to the Social Science Research Council. More than 30,000 youths between the ages of 16 and 24 aren't working or in school. That's worse than in Dallas or in Houston. Meanwhile, community activists had another problem they wanted to solve, the city's 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. youth curfew. Akeem Brown is the chair of My Brother's Keeper San Antonio. This ordinance exposed San Antonio's youth to unnecessary law enforcement, right? We started to see this negative effect disproportionately on boys and men of color. Brown sent an open letter to city council asking for changes to the curfew. At the same time, Flores and the other city staffers recommended that the council use the curfew to connect with those 30,000 disconnected youth. Following the staff's suggestion, the council decriminalized the curfew at the end of May, but they didn't get rid of it entirely. It's still a violation of city ordinance for children between the ages of 10 and 16 to be out alone at night or during school hours. But instead of being charged with a misdemeanor, police now have the option to take them to a case manager. 
The fiscal year 2019 city budget includes funding for a 24-hour re-engagement center on San Antonio's west side. When it opens in January, it will be staffed with social workers and case managers. Flores says their job will be to connect kids and young adults with the help they need to stay out of trouble and in school. I think many of them you know, they just need a second chance. They fell into hard times. They made a poor life decision. They had to drop out of school. Now they can't get a job. Well, we're going to be that second chance. Flores acknowledges that the center will have its challenges, trying to reach hard-to-reach kids like 15-year-old Dominique. At Albert Benavides Park, near the site of the new center, Dominique says he dropped out of school a year ago after getting kicked out for fighting. You don't like to fight, or do you like to fight? I, I like to fight. Oh, okay. I fight everybody in school if I want to. You like to fight, so yeah. if you had another place to go to school, would you go back? Nah. Nah? Why not? This is boring. Dominique may feel differently in a few years. Directors of re-engagement centers in Boston and Omaha have found that teens that drop out of school at 14 or 15 start to realize they need a diploma by the time they're 17 or 18. If and when he's interested, San Antonio Center will be ready to help. In San Antonio, I'm Camille Phillips. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you're listening to the Texas Standard. Buying a car is rarely an easy process, but imagine doing all the research, shopping around, finding the best deal, getting a loan, finally driving that car off the lot only to find out that the dealership you just gave your business to has suddenly gone bankrupt. Well, this is the situation that many West Texans now find themselves in. Rager Dykes Auto Group operates 13 dealerships in places like Lubbock, Midland, and Snyder. And on August 1st, the group filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That's left many consumers in limbo. As Sarah Self-Walbrick reports, she's a business reporter for the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, and she joins us now. Welcome to Texas Standard, Sarah. Good morning. Thanks for having me. First, uh, tell us how the Rager Dykes Auto Group got into financial trouble in the first place. So on July 31st, Ford Motor Credit Co. filed a civil lawsuit against Rager or six Rager Dykes entities. Um, the way Rager Dykes had their business broken up, um, this wasn't all of their business facets, but they filed against six entities that they had provided crediting um, and money to over the past few years, claiming things like um, selling vehicles out of trust, double flooring vehicles, which is when you obtain twice the financing for one vehicle, oh. um, and a couple of other things. Um, ultimately, um, $113 million is what we're looking at in Ouch. this main lawsuit. That is, uh, that's that's quite the sum of money. So yes. uh, are the dealerships, I mean, Chapter 11 is reorganization. That doesn't mean that you're mm -hmm. actually uh, locking up the doors. So are these dealerships Correct. still operating normally, and, and where are consumers in all this? Um, they are operating in some capacity. Um, we know that at its peak, Rager Dykes had 700 employees. They're down to 120. So um, it's definitely affected operations. We know that sales have not been good since um, they filed for Chapter 11 on August 1st. And that's kind of been one of the huge issues. Yeah. Well, well what about those who bought those uh, vehicles before they had any idea that there was trouble there in, in Rager Dykes land? 
So we know that um, about 900 transactions were interrupted in some capacity um, because of the bankruptcy. Um, we found out this week that at least 100 people have filed official complaints with the Texas Department of Motor Vehicles. But, I mean, there are hundreds of other peoples out there who um, yeah. either their titles are tied up somewhere or um, they didn't receive all of their documents that they were supposed to. Wow. So um, it's led to a lot of mess for a lot of people. Anecdotally, what are you hearing on the street? I mean, what what is this? Uh, what are people telling you about their experiences? I think some of the biggest things that we've heard so far is been with titles. There's a certain time frame that you wait until you get your t official title in. A lot of people got stuck in limbo. I've talked to one and gentleman um who traded in a vehicle and um Rager Dykes was going to take over the payments on that the lien and um bought a new vehicle because of title issues he's currently paying twelve hundred dollars a month in car payments um because of that documentation was never filed in the correct time frame. wow so um I think that's probably one of the worst stories I've heard but um things like that have been some of the main issues now, you mentioned that um, many of these customers have reached out to the state mm -hmm. for help. Uh, what are the options for resolution here? And, and is this something that, uh, say, the attorney general's office might get involved in? Our local tax office has mainly advised that um, buyers get in touch with the person that they worked with to buy the car. Um, Rager Dykes has made um, serious efforts to remedy as many transactions as possible. Um, we learned in court this past week that um, they have remedied over 100 tax title and license issues in the past few weeks. Obviously, that's just a dent in what could come. But um, basically, I mean, what consumers need to do at this point is track down where um, their title was in that process. Really, the only way to do that is by working with Rager Dykes. Sarah Self-Walbrick is covering this story for the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. Something tells me it's not over yet. We'll have a link to her latest at texasstandard.org. Sarah, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Screening can lead to early detection. Men age 50 and older are advised to discuss screening with their physicians. More at TexasOncology.com. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. The Fort Bend County Republican Party has apologized for a newspaper ad aimed at Hindu voters. But the controversy could have lasting consequences, as Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports. The ad ran in the India Herald ahead of a festival honoring Ganesha, an aspect of the divine depicted with the head of an elephant. The ad concluded with the appeal, Would you worship a donkey or an elephant? The choice is yours. Rishi Bhutada is a board member of the Hindu American Foundation and a Fort Bend County resident. He says the ad provoked outrage in the county's Hindu community. Not only for the fact that they equated worship of Lord Ganesha to choosing a political party, uh, but also because it implied that Hindus worship animals as gods, and uh, it's a very common misconception that can lead to bullying. The Hindu American Foundation is planning a get-out-the-vote campaign. Several South Asian candidates are on the ballot in Fort Bend. In Houston, I'm Andrew Schneider. 
Houston Texans coach Bill O'Brien had harsh words and little patience for an East Texas school superintendent who made a racist comment about quarterback Deshaun Watson. Lynn Redden heads on Alaska Independent School District. The Houston Chronicle reports that Redden posted a comment on the Cron.com Facebook page Monday that said, quote, you can't count on a black quarterback. The Facebook post was promoting a story about the Texans' recent loss. O'Brien was asked about the comment at a press conference earlier this week. I really don't want to... Um you know, waste a lot of time uh, responding to outdated, inaccurate, ignorant, idiotic statements. Um, I'll just let Deshaun's proven success on the field, his character off the field, speak for itself. Redden told Cron.com he totally regrets the comment. In a statement posted on their website, On Alaska ISD said their district, quote, does not condone negative comments or actions against any race. It added the district will take appropriate measures to address the situation quickly. Airports in Texas's largest cities continue to see higher rates of customer satisfaction, according to a report from J.D. Power & Associates out this week. It's based on responses from 40,000 people who traveled through 64 North American airports over the last year. Of the 24 large airports in the study, Dallas Love Field, Austin Bergstrom, and Houston's Hobby all made the top 10. San Antonio International Airport ranks 14th among 21 medium-sized airports. Mike Taylor is with J.D. Power. He says the San Antonio Airport provides a good example of how to improve the airport experience for travelers because it makes them feel like they're in that city. Giving a sense of place to the airport really adds to satisfaction and that extends to the food, beverage and retail because people are looking for experiences they can only get in San Antonio or only get in Austin or in Dallas. Taylor says travelers they surveyed spent on average 56 minutes past airport security. Thoughts look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. After 2016, a lot of people would agree political polls have become something of a letdown. In the past, they were seen as rather useful tools in the run-up to election days, fairly reliable indicators of political sentiment and trends, but polling methods have struggled to keep up with changes in technology. For instance, who has a landline phone anymore? That used to be one of the most reliable ways for pollsters to gather opinion. How can we really know what's on people's minds these days? Well, what if you could tell what they were interested in politically? Get inside their heads somehow. What if you could find out not what pollsters were asking, but people themselves? That's at the heart of a news experiment in the run-up to the midterms to help us understand how this is working. Simon Rogers is the data editor for Google's News Lab, which is behind this effort. Simon, welcome to Texas Standard. Hi there. How did this project come about and who all's involved? So the idea was that um, we wanted to see what Google Trends would be useful around the election. And part of the idea for doing that is that, you know, this is the first midterm election where we've had real-time trends from Google Search. We've never had them before. It used to be that you had to wait two or three days to get our data back. Mm -hmm. And now we can get it back in two or three minutes. So it's an incredible signal, but it's, you know, it's, it's the first time we've had it. It's not like it's a necessarily a replacement for polling, but it's certainly something that's very complimentary because... There are billions of searches every single day. A lot of them are new. That's the first time we've ever seen them. And the idea that they don't mean anything I think is wrong. They're a very powerful social signal that tells us something about what we care about. So, Simon, give us a sense of how this would work at the user level. The user presumably yeah. is is uh, the journalist? Um, well, the Google News Lab is really kind of 
uh, editorial bridge, I guess, for the news industry and, and Google. We work on a lot of editorial projects. So a lot of our users are journalists. Well, we do find that just a lot of people use Google Trends um, the website, which is google.com slash trends. Mm-hmm. And you go to the site and there's a page you can click on that shows every state in the country. And you click on a particular state. So you click on Texas and you can go and see really kind of how the uh, some of the candidates compare and search, but also the kind of the issues that people search for in different counties um, across the state. How do you filter out all the um, uh, garbage? I mean, there's a, there, people yeah. are searching for a lot of stuff. So, so what exactly. sort of filters do you layer here to make it relevant for people who want to understand what the significance, uh, politically speaking, is? This is part of the reason we kept it very simple in a way, because there is a lot of noise you know, around, you can see it around candidates. Say, so for instance, just because... Um, say one candidate is more searched than another candidate, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that candidate's going to get everybody voting for them. That's not really how it works because we don't measure you know, voting intent. That's not something we can measure from the way you search. But what it can give you is an insight into, say, the issues that people care for. And and so, for instance, if you look at uh, Texas, healthcare is the, the top search issue, and that's definitely something we're seeing Right across the country. Fascinating. Um, and that and that's healthcare, not because people are searching for I have a runny nose or you know, I've got a cold uh-huh. or, my, or my my child's or whatever. That's healthcare as an issue. And and I guess the way that we know that is because when you're searching for something, Google really tries to work out what you're really searching for. Are you searching for Lincoln the president or Lincoln the the movie or Lincoln the car? Mm-hmm. And each of those is a, a topic in Google search. So we're, we're looking at those topics, and the cool thing about them is that they are they comprise of thousands of words. They're, um, they're kind of language agnostic, so it will pick up searches in Spanish as well as English, hmm. um, for instance. And that gives us a way to look at these kind of political issues as best as we can. You know, this is um, AI in action. It's, uh, it's a computer working out what you're searching for. So we, you know, that's the best that we can do in terms of filtering out stuff. And there's and the, the the cool thing about the site is you can actually go and do your own searches. So, for instance, say you're interested in the race between um, the Senate race. Between, yeah, uh, Beto O'Rourke, O'Rourke and uh, Cruz, Ted Cruz. Yeah. Yeah. Then actually, Beto O'Rourke is is um, ahead of Ted Cruz in search interests at the moment, which is interesting. You can certainly see, um, but that varies across the state. You know, in in Brewster County, for instance, Beto O'Rourke is is top search, but in um, Panola County, for instance, Cruz is, uh, is top search. The, the thing that really I find most interesting is the searches around the issues because it kind of reflects what's going on politically. So, for instance, if you look in, within Texas, since 2017, I guess, in this kind of presidential cycle, right, you can right. really see how on normally healthcare is the top thing, something people really obviously care about. But then you can see these spikes in a subject like immigration, right. first of which was around the travel ban, um, you know, the beginning of 2017, and the the last of which was around the uh, the family separation. Yeah, I think what's exciting for a lot of political watchers is that this takes us a couple of steps further away from the horse race aspect of politics and more into the issues that people might be voting on come these midterms. Simon Rogers is the data editor for Google's News Lab. Uh, Simon, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. Thank you for having me. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com.
This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. We have a project here on the Standard. It's called The Whole Truth. Listeners are invited to share anonymous accounts of hard-to-tell stories, things they might not otherwise share. But a warning, the whole truth you're about to hear deals with sexual assault. It is difficult to listen to, extremely raw. If you're in a place with kids around, we strongly urge you to turn off the radio and join us again in eight minutes or so. For those who are able to listen, this is a story worth hearing. The first time that my uncle raped me, I was six. By the way, my father was not in the picture at any of this. Uh, the reason why all this abuse was able to happen was because my parents were getting separated and my uncle told me that because my father was living with his parents, that meant that he didn't love me and my little sister anymore and he wouldn't believe us. Um, I was only able to come forward to my mom because he raped my little sister and made me watch. He made me watch. I thought that my mom would be mad at me because I couldn't protect her. She wasn't mad at me though. Uh, she uh, immediately started the whole process of trying to get him held accountable. This whole time she's been the one to protect us when nobody else would. Uh, and she was just a child herself. I mean, what 20 year old knows what to do when that happens, you know? The family wanted to protect him and not me, and they were really big in the church. Um, a few years later, I was a—I had realized that I was not mature enough for college, so I left the college that I was attending and joined the Marine Corps. I was stationed in California, and I found out that he had been arrested in Idaho for raping his daughter. So I feel a lot of guilt because I didn't try hard enough. I didn't try hard enough to warn her, and it's my fault that he did this again. I wanted to kill him. Uh, Idaho is not that far from California, and one of my friends knew that I was upset about something and got me to tell him why I was upset. and. Uh, he was like, well, let's go. He's like, let's do this. And we had a plan. And I realized, though, that uh, my uncle had stolen my childhood. I was not going to give him control over my adulthood. When the Me Too movement started in the fall, I wanted to share my story. Uh, but all I was able to do was just share hashtag Me Too. And that's the whole truth. This story came to us for our ongoing feature, The Whole Truth. Now, uh, the idea of The Whole Truth, as it was originally conceived, was to serve as an outlet for untold and hard-to-tell stories. But I think this one demands further elaboration and discussion. We do need to talk with someone who can take us through what we've just heard and talk about uh, the rawness of this experience at the very least. 
Emily LeBlanc is a licensed professional counselor supervisor, LPCS. She is a community advocate for survivors of abuse in the Austin, Texas area. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. It's my pleasure. The first thing this woman says, her mother believed her story. How can grown-ups recognize when children speaking about sexual abuse uh, are in fact sharing something that demands your attention when maybe those kids don't even have the language to express themselves? I think you touched on the most important one, and that's when someone tells you they've been sexually assaulted or sexually abused, you start by believing them um, and validate that they are not alone, that you are going to stay with them, you're going to get them help. What we can do for kids who may not have the words yet, we can look for um, changes, particularly sudden changes in their behavior and their sleeping habits and their eating habits if they were social and now they isolate or vice versa or anything that seems developmentally out of place if they're acting younger than they are or older than they are, talking about things that don't seem developmentally appropriate. Those are all signs that we can look for that a child's trying to tell us something. In this um, particular segment of The Whole Truth, we uh, heard the woman uh, here say that her family was big in the church. We're not going to mention what church, but people of faith everywhere, I think, have been shaken by allegations of sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church. But there's so much pressure on survivors from not wanting to seem disrespectful to their faith to not wanting to accuse people who cast themselves as servants of God. Um, What are your thoughts on that? First of all, there's nothing godly about sexual assault or sexual abuse. Right. Um, The second thing to know is that there's three ingredients that are needed in order for sexual abuse to occur, and those are access, privacy, and control. Um, Access, certainly because there's children um, included in almost all communities of faith. Privacy, because religion and faith is such a personal experience, it's, it's built into the institutions. And control because there's nothing more powerful than being seen as the authority on what's sacred. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing to consider is that perpetrators almost always engage in what's called community grooming. How do you mean community grooming? So they're establishing themselves as you know the guy that we would never believe would do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes it less likely that their victims are going to disclose what happened to them because they too believe that the community mm-hmm. won't believe them. We've been talking about shame here, but I want to focus on something else that is uh, incredibly heart-wrenching, and that's this woman says, uh, well, she expresses feelings of guilt. Um, How common is that, and what does the community do about it? Guilt is almost universal to survivors of sexual assault and sexual abuse. I've worked with thousands of survivors, and almost every single one of them has struggled with feelings of guilt about could, what could happened Could you to them. elaborate on that? Where does that come from? It comes from the abuser. The perpetrators spend a lot of time and energy trying to convince the victims that it's their fault because it's how they isolate them. As far as what we as the community can, can do about that, I think um, the first thing we have to do is start by believing victims. It's the only crime that gets committed where we question victims. Mm-hmm. If I'm you know, robbed walking out of the grocery store, no one asks me why I had my purse on my shoulder or why I was carrying groceries in my hands or what I was wearing. But for some reason, with sexual assault and sexual abuse, um, presumably because the body is the crime scene, we start to question victims about what they were doing. In Texas, a third of women are sexual assault survivors. A third of women. A third of women, according to the most recent prevalence study. And if I can blame victims um, for what they were wearing or what they were drinking or who they were talking to or who they were dating, 
I can get a false sense of reality and a false sense of control that maybe I can keep it from happening to me. But in order to really take that control, we would have to say, I'm not going to church. I'm not getting married. I'm not dating. I'm not going to have male friends. Most women are assaulted by uh, men who they know, and children almost always are assaulted by someone that they trust. And so I think as a community, we have to shift our perception to what reality really is. We're going to have a link to uh, several of these uh, resources and other points that our guest has been talking about at our own website, texasstandard.org. We've been speaking with Emily LeBlanc. She's a licensed professional counselor, supervisor, LPCS, and a community advocate for survivors of abuse, and she's based in the Austin, Texas area. Thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. We certainly do appreciate it. My pleasure. My name is David Fruchter, and I am with the Typewriter Rodeo. A group of friends, writers who take our vintage manual typewriters, and we type poems on request for anyone who comes up and asks us for a poem. None of us ever read the privacy notifications. All that I wanted was to use some dumb app, but now suddenly pages of bizarre legal crap scrolls on my screen, and I have to approve by clicking a button text by lawyers who've been paid to make my brain tied up in knots, so I will abandon all caution or thoughts of privacy rights. I used to like cookies, but now all of us are just gullible rookies, signing away everything that we see just so we can use some software for free. My name is David Fruchter, and I am with the Typewriter Rodeo. You're listening to the Texas Standard. Support for the Typewriter Radio comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. The Typewriter Rodeo operates on request. You've got an idea for a poem? Send us your suggestions on social media or email texasstandard at kut.org. Alas, it's Friday, not that you need reminding, but before we sign off for the week, we have to talk about the week that was in Texas politics. Editor-in-Chief Emily Ramshaw of the Texas Tribune joins us now in the studio. Emily, good to see you. Hey, happy Friday. I know you're very busy these days. We're going to be talking about the Texas Tribune Fest in just a moment, but I suppose we should start with uh, some Democrats and political junkies still scratching their heads over that special election in Senate District 19. Uh, tell us about the Battle of the Peets. Sure. It was Pete Gallego, the Democrat, and Pete Flores, the Republican. And this was a special election for the seat that Carlos Uresti had to vacate after he was criminally prosecuted. Mm-hmm. The This is a reliably Democratic seat. And in this special election, it went for the Republican. It was a huge loss for the Democrats in a season where they were really hoping to see a blue wave. So pretty dramatic night. What do you think? Is this this a harbinger of what's going to happen in Texas or is this um, I mean because it's hard to explain well here's how you could explain it this is a special election where turnout is exceedingly low and when turnout is exceedingly low Republicans do 
especially well. So I'm not sure it's a harbinger of what's to come, say, in November. Mm -hmm, However, mm -hmm. it is a reminder that even when it counts, Democrats have a really hard time turning folks out. So I'd say that uh, doesn't bode well for the party. Well, I I know uh, you've been giving a lot of thought to the big event tonight. I know a lot of Texans have, too. First of three broadcast debates between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke for that U.S. Senate seat. Uh, this coming the same week in which the pollsters were sending some seriously mixed messages on the state of that race. <laughs> Where are we now? Sure. So there was one poll of likely voters that showed that Ted Cruz was up by about nine percentage Quinnipiac points. Quinnipiac poll. Quinnipiac. And then there was a second poll, a Reuters poll, that showed among uh, their version of likely voters that Beto O'Rourke was actually up by two, which was the first time Beto O'Rourke has been up in a poll. Right. Uh, meanwhile, we're seeing even more news today that you know other polls are calling it sort of too close to call. So I think what you can take away here is, first of all, people identify, quote unquote, likely voters in very different ways. But I think it's safe to assume this is a single digit race. A single digit race. Yeah, I think that is probably safe to safe safe to say. Do you go to that Real Clear Politics website and look at the aggregation? Indeed, yes. Uh, It's it's fascinating uh, to watch. By the way, as we, uh, I know you're going to be watching the debates tonight. Anything in particular you're going to be looking for? You know, I think we know that Ted Cruz is really an expert debater. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how Beto Rourke, who is a very eloquent public speaker, mm-hmm. uh, compares to Ted Cruz. So yes, we're going to be watching this very closely tonight. Yeah, I, we should note, by the way, that uh, our big broadcast next Friday will be taking place live from the Texas Tribune Festival. And uh, Emily, we hope we're hoping you can join us on air there. Uh, I'll be there. How can folks find out more about the Tribune Festival and and who are the big names uh, that you're looking forward to seeing? So the first easy thing is to go to texastribune.org/festival, where you can see all the information you need about registration and about speakers. But mm-hmm. we've got everyone from uh, I'm interviewing Julian Castro, which I'm really looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Um, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, we have John Kerry as the opening night speaker. Beto O'Rourke as the closing night speaker. And in addition to all these speakers, we have a free uh, session this year called Open Congress, a whole lot of free programming on Saturday up and down Congress Avenue. And it's in a different location, too. Yes, so we're no longer on the UT campus. We are right downtown, right in the shadow of the Capitol. All kinds of uh, fun things going on, too, that aren't specific programming, like yoga on the Capitol lawn on Friday and Saturday mornings. In my years of covering the legislature, I have never done yoga in the shadow of the Capitol. You know, Evan Evan Smith, uh, who is at uh, Texas Tribune, co-founder, he once said that uh, Texas Tribune Festival is a bit like South by Southwest for uh, political nerds, I think, something along those lines. And it, it, it does have that feel for sure. Emily Ramshaw is a very busy person right now. She's editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune. Have a great weekend. We'll see you at the festival. Thank you. See you next week. And you were listening to the Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar is away, but sitting in for him, the Texas Standards own Michael Marks. Howdy, Michael. Hey, David. What's going on? Uh, I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> well, I had some reaction to bring you from uh, the forthcoming Cruise O'Rourke debate. Right. But as we have perhaps talked that to death a little bit, <laughs> uh, and maybe we can wait until there's actually a debate to discuss yeah, on right. Monday. On Monday. Let us dispense with that and let us move east to Livingston, Texas. Where? I have an update from a story that was in the Texas Roundup yesterday about 73-year-old Judy Cochran, a grandma and the mayor of Livingston, who shot a 12-foot gator she believes killed her miniature horse three years ago. Video of Cochran shooting the gator went viral, and now 
in keeping with the natural order of the internet, she's getting some backlash for this. <laughs> the natural Co order of the internet. Cochran said she's received several negative calls, messages, including some threats. And you don't have to go very far to find folks who are on Team Gator. In fact, there are some on our very own Texas Standard Facebook page. Say? And I will bring you some of their reaction, including this one from Fiona Aria de Sitter. It certainly wasn't ethical shooting the gator, she means. The responsibility for the death of a domesticated animal is with the owner, not with the environment. Dan Alvarez chimes in, plus, it was three years after the horse had been eaten. There's no reason for it, and her little horse is still dead. Is there a statute of limitations on eating miniature horses? I didn't realize that was such a thing. This, this is the thing. I, I admit, I have not taken a gator census of Livingston, Fair uh, but... If the if the eating occurred three years ago, how can you be sure that this was the gator? Well, how there, can you know that's, that? That's a that's a point for sure. You can take it up with the mayor if you dare. Um, but <laughs> I do not. by the way, there's a there's a really fascinating story in the New York Times if you want to mm -hmm. learn more about this um, uh, story. It's it's fa and there are a lot of very very strong opinions about it and uh, very well persuasive on both sides. I have to have to acknowledge. Uh, but, of course, uh, the big event is tonight, and we want to remind you of something. If you're watching, we'd love it if you could join us online. Hashtag is TXDecides. That's T-X-D-E-C-I-D-E-S. And we would love to follow what you're making of the debate. Alas, we're out of time for the big broadcast. We're going to be back on Monday. On behalf of Michael Marks, the rest of the Texas Standard crew, I'm David Brown wishing you a wonderful weekend. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Additionally, Texas Mutual Insurance Company is a founding sponsor of Texas Standard. Would your company or organization like to be a sponsor as well? Contact your local station for opportunities within your community. For statewide sponsorships, visit TexasPublicMediaNetwork.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. PRI, Public Radio International.